put these back in the basket. If you want to direct these to a specific person, you can come back up and write, write the person you're directing it to. Otherwise, we'll just kind of divide them up amongst ourselves. Uh, I, did a, I did a workshop on sponsorship with, uh, with a couple of women in my uh, home group, and, and we got a lot of questions that people had asked. And, and you know, it was, a, it was a big room, kind of like this. And there were all these questions. And I did the last session, and the two women I was doing it with grabbed the questions. And they, they like, divvied up the questions on who was answering what. And they took all the good ones and they gave me like, like, what's your opinion on medication in AA? And like, should men sponsor women and women sponsor? They gave me like all the contra. I was like, what? This is what I get? You know? uh, um, that was great. Let me see. Let's see. I, I wrote, jotted down a couple things I wanted to talk about while, uh, while uh, Mary makes me think of so many things. And, you know, she talked about this 10 and 11 and, and our job, what these steps do is they allow us, they, the big book and, and, and um, AA doesn't necessarily tell me how to handle these outside problems that we're faced with. The idea is to fix the inside before I deal with the outside. And that's what the big book tells me how to do, right? How to fix the inside before I tackle the outside. And if I can go through life that way, I make much less of a mess, you know, because that's counterintuitive. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm faced with the problem and, and what my mind says is here's how, we're, first off, here's who we're going to blame and then here's how we're going to fix it. And, and what I want to learn to do is instead, immediately when I'm faced with a problem, to fix the inside first, to go to God and go to you for help and fix the inside. And that doesn't mean that we don't deal with the problem. We, we still deal with whatever the situation. A lot of times we find out it's not a problem. But so, sometimes we still have to deal with situations. But I want to do it with an open heart. I want to do it with love in my heart. I want to go, that's how I want to deal with the things. And not because I'm a loving guy. Because it works. That's much more effective in life. And I make much, much less of a mess. That's great stuff. Um, the 12th step. Is it important? It's pretty important. What is so important about it? I want to just I'll start out with just a little bit of reading. Um, on, at the beginning of the chapter, working with others, right, right here where, uh, where Mary left off, on page 89, it says, Practical experience. Okay, that's good. I love that about this book. It's a lot of practical experience. Do you know how it says we in the big book all the time? It's always talking about we and our and us. Do you know who that is? That's the people who were in AA when they wrote the book. This is their experience. And sometimes it's a little bit different than what we experience. For instance, it, it highly recommends that you become re members of religious bodies. Right, Mary? Didn't you, you talk about that, right? Yeah. Okay. You, you become some sort of member of the You didn't hear what I said? Yeah. She did, actually. Yeah, yeah, um, and and there's a good reason for that because when they wrote the big book, the oldest old timer in AA had like three years. When it was published, Bill had four years. That was your old timer, you know. And Bill was a mess of an old timer, you know. So your spirit today, there are people like Cliff Bishop who I can go to um, in AA or um, who have. 40 years of sobriety, 50 years of sobriety, you know, a long, been doing this a long time and can truly be a spiritual mentor, you know. But the people who were in AA when they wrote these, this book, 
they needed to go to, to uh, people outside of AA for sure. And we still can today. I mean, I have some great teachers, you know, some great books that I read and teachers outside of AA, but, but that's good stuff. But uh, I don't know where I was going with that. Um, but, oh, that's who, that's who the we is in the big book. It's the, it's the members of AA when they wrote the book and they're talking about their experience and what's their experience shown. Now, you got to understand, we see people with a long-term sobriety around and we know that AA works based on the people that we see. When they were writing this book, they really didn't know. They knew it worked for a couple years, but like they didn't know somebody was going to stay sober for 10 years. What? They didn't know if this thing was really going to work that way. So they talked so much about, look, here's what our experience has shown us. We know that this is hard to believe, but this is what's been happening. And here's what they found. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. And what I used to hear a lot in AA meetings was, well, I, I, I do service in AA. I set up the chairs and I'm on the committees, and you know we do these things to indirectly carry the message, but that's not intensive work with other alcoholics. You know, it's not that some of us are here to be sponsors, and some of us are here to carry. Now, standing up here behind the microphone, that's not for everybody. If you're out there going, I never want to do that, that's cool. You don't have to. You don't have to. Your sponsor may tell you different, but you know, you, you, don't, you don't have, this is not, this is not part of, of having a complete AA program, but carrying this message absolutely is. Working with others is. And there are some of you out there, and I know because you've come to talk to me, and you said, Chad, I love the way you say this stuff. I can really hear it from you, and that's great. And there are some of you out there who are not coming to talk to me who are thinking, you're bugging the crap out of me. Your accent, I want to throw up. You know, it's, and, and many other things about the way that I the dramatic pauses. You know, they're like, God, you know. You know. So the way that I say it, not everybody can hear it, but guess what? I'll guarantee you there's somebody that can hear it from you. There's somebody there who can hear it from you that can't hear it from me, you know? So we're, God, God needs us all. He needs us all to help somebody. There's somebody out there waiting for you to get through these steps and start doing this work, you know? And we're all built, all of us as members of AA are built to carry this message and to work with others. We can all be sponsors, we don't all have to sponsor 50 people like Katie does or, you know, some, some of these folks, probably Cliff. I mean, we don't all have to sponsor that many people, but, but we do need to be actively working with other alcoholics on a regular basis if we want to stay sober and be happy about it. So um, it says here, it works when other activities fail. And what are those other activities? It can be anything. You know, but I love Charlie said one time, if you find your your best friend in, in bed with your wife, it may not be a good time to meditate. <laughs> it may not be that effective. You know, maybe I need to say a prayer and go help somebody, you know, and, and, and Mary did a great job of talking about that at the end of the uh, uh, sex inventory, because for sure, man, th this is the thing. It says uh, this is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. And I've had, I've had, I love the big book thumpers. I just, I'm kind of one of them. And, and, and uh, I, I love, they'll come to me after the, the, a talk and say, um, it doesn't say carry the message. It says carry this message. And I'm like, you're right. It does. You got me there. But that it is, it's important that we carry that. What message, the message in this book, the message, our experience combined with what's in this book, carry this message to the other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. There are professionals who have been to a lot of school 
that can't help an alcoholic the way you can because you have that experience and you've done what it takes to recover. Yeah, and we're, we're in a unique position there. That's really cool. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. The cool thing about working about 12-step in alcoholics is if they're ready to get sober, they will tell you things they've been keeping secret from people forever. They just spill it. I mean, you see it happening. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. It says life will take on new... It says remember they're very ill. I, I was talking to Charlie about a guy that I was working with one time, and, and this, this guy, you know, he did this and did that, and now he's this. And Charlie said, read the, the last sentence in the first paragraph of working with others. Last sentence, first paragraph. Okay, last sentence, first paragraph. Work. Remember they are very ill. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, you're welcome to use that if you'd like. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. you got to understand, man, this, this book was written with the intention of being able to... There, there were meet, when this book was written, there were meetings in Akron, Cleveland, and New York. Roughly. This book was intended to be able to send it down to Texas or send it to North Carolina or send it somewhere and say, read this book and do what it says and you can recover from alcoholism. Can you imagine if that's what it was? You didn't get to go to a meeting and get a sponsor. They just hand you the book. Go get them. And that's what they're saying right here. They're saying, look, I know that you think you can't do this, but you, it's, it's, you, it's on you now. Go find another alcoholic. You know, go find somebody. And it's cool today because we can sit in the meeting and, and we can go to meetings and find them. You know, but at this time there weren't meetings, you know, and they're having to go find these, these, uh, these people that they're acquainted with. He says, perhaps you're not acquainted with any drinkers. They had to go find these, these uh, alcoholics. So the importance of the 12-step, why do we do this? It's, it's talked about at the end of uh, Dr. Bob's story and other places throughout the book. One reason is it ensures immunity from drinking. If you want to stay sober, work with others, carry this message. It's a duty. Man, it's repaying my debt. And it's not like I have to repay it. When there's a guy that's willing to do anything to quit drinking, and he comes in here and he does this work and he has a spiritual awakening, a lot of times you don't have to ask him to carry this message. You can't stop him. We get it and we can't quit talking about it. And go use that. That's why you have so many people that come in and they get freedom and then they want to go uh, be a, a counselor, you know, or go work in treatment, right? Do you guys have those? Well, man, cherish that. Just push them in the right direction, you know? We don't all need to be counselors, but we can go help people for free and for fun, man. This stuff is great. And that's another reason, the pleasure behind it. Dr. Bob called it pleasure. It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it's, I love that sense of freedom that I have when I've been working with somebody. And you know what that is? That's because I haven't been in here for the last hour. I've been out of my head for the last hour and focused on how I can help you. And that's where happiness comes from. And AA didn't invent that. It's in all kinds of spiritual paths and religions and philosophies. And another thing is that we get to become a part of. You know, I really started to feel like a member like I had earned a seat here when I started helping the next guy. And you can do that even before you get through the steps. I love uh, Chris R. talks about, um, about this a lot, how they scooped him up and said, man, we need you. We need your help. 
We need you. I don't care if it's making coffee, man. Scoop somebody up and say, look, I need you to do this. You need a job. Oh, here's somebody coming in. Yesterday was your first day. Today's their first day. Go, go tell them where everything is. You know, we need you. We need your help. And, uh, and that's how we begin to feel like we're a part of this deal and we're not just mooching off people. Okay, so how to, how to sponsor. I'm going to base this on my experience. If you do it different, that's fine. That's fine. But here's how I see it. First thing I want to talk about is how to 12-step somebody. I was sitting in a meeting. There was this guy when I first moved to Austin. I was thinking about asking him to be my new sponsor. I'd heard him share in a meeting. He said some cool stuff. And I was like, oh, this is great. And then we're in a meeting and check out what happened. At the end of the meeting, it's just me and him. And I'm going to talk to him. But there's also a brand new guy in the room. And he's going to talk to this brand new guy. And I'm thinking, oh, this is cool. I can't wait to see what he says. Because he's like... And the first thing he tells the guy is, probably need to go see a doctor. You know, a lot of times when we're drinking, we don't go see doctors. And the guy goes, man, I, I do a yearly checkup. I haven't missed it in 20 years or something. And I was thinking, is that what we're supposed to say to the new guy? That's how we do this? Go, you need to go see a doctor? Make sure you're healthy? Like, are you due for a whatever? Yeah. Okay. I didn't really know exactly how to talk to somebody new. Um, but, oh, you're in trouble. I saw who it was. But this book tells me exactly how to do it. And if you're wondering, well, how do you do it exactly? And maybe you have a little bit of an idea. Maybe you've done it some, but you're wondering, is there an exact set of instructions on how to do it? There is. There is. Some of the things that they tell you to do in the big book, they've been doing a lot of it. And this is one of those things. The founding members of AA were 12-stepping wet drunks all the time. Do you know how many wet drunks I've 12-stepped in my life? Not that many. I meet most of my sponsees in AA. Most of them are at a treatment center that I go to, and they're already sober. But that wasn't the case back then. They were 12-stepping people all the time. And even when they would get together and have meetings, it would be at somebody's house. And you know what they talk about? Well, we got so-and-so in room number whatever at the hospital and so-and-so has been over there to talk to him. Now, why don't you two go talk to him? And here's this guy, he's atheist. Or this guy's actually, a, you know, he's a member of this church or whatever. This is his situation at home. And they're talking about how to help people, right? That's what they were doing. And they have very specific instructions on it. So if you want to check it out in your book, if you don't already know this, go to page 91. And right in the middle of the page, it says, see your man alone if possible. That's the beginning. Now, up until this point, they told us where to find the drunk. They've told us when to approach the drunk. They've talked some about how to deal with the family and things like that because so many of these were approached through the family. But right here in the middle of 91, they're about to tell you exactly how to talk to the guy. I've 12-stepped people outside of meetings. I've 12-stepped them outside of treatment centers. Um, I've 12-stepped people that have been sober for a long time, but they're struggling in AA and they're not doing any work and they don't have a sponsor. And so there are things here that apply that we can use right now next time we go to a meeting. Look for that guy in the meeting or that gal in the meeting that ain't laughing, that looks unapproachable. Find them. Talk to them. Go up to them and say, hey, hey, you wanna, uh, can I buy you a cup of coffee or can we sit outside and talk for a minute or whatever. Worst thing you can do is embarrass yourself. It's the absolute worst thing you can do. The best thing you can do is maybe save somebody's life. You know, so, so if you're wanting to get out there and really actively work with people, then, then um, uh, make it your mission when you go to a meeting. 
And I don't do it every time. Sometimes my mission is to catch up with this guy I hadn't talked to in forever. Oh, man, there's Otto. I'm going to go talk to him for a while. That's cool. Maybe my mission needs to be to look around and go, who, who doesn't want to be here? Let's go talk to that person. And rather than just, you know, hitting them with some promises, you know, keep coming back. It gets better. This too shall pass. How about we say, let's sit down and write some inventory. Let me show you how to do this. Really struggling with this thing going on or whatever? Sit down. Let's write it out. You know, we can read it to me. Get some freedom. You know, maybe pass out the instructions the way we pass out the promises, right? Okay, so how do you do this? See your man alone if possible. At first, engage in general conversation. After a while, turn the talk to some phase of drinking. Tell him enough about your drinking habits, symptoms, and experiences to encourage him to speak of himself. If he wishes to talk, let him do so. Get him talking, man. These, they were salesmen. You know, they were really salesmen. If, if you've ever read on how to, how to sell something, it's very similar to this 12-step call. You will thus get a better idea of how you ought to proceed. If he is not communicative, give him a sketch of your drinking career. That's funny, drinking career. Up to the time you quit, but say nothing for the moment of how that was accomplished. Because later on, we want him to ask that. If you can get the guy to say, so how did you quit? That's awesome. If he's in a serious mood, dwell on the troubles. Um, don't moralize or lecture. If his mood is light, tell him funny stories. Get him to tell some of his. Okay, have you heard people say in A, you need to qualify the newcomer? You ever heard that? You need to qualify somebody? That means make sure they're alcoholic. You don't tell them they're alcoholic. They, they come up, they do that on their own. But you figure it out. Figure out if this person's alcoholic. You know how you're going to know? Right here it says, when he sees you know all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. So the first principle we practice in AA is identification. I sit down with you. If you're the new person, I sit down with you, and we identify with each other. Because you don't care what I have to say unless you know that I know. And if you don't know all about the drinking game, let's just say that maybe you're an AA and you're a drug addict. Okay, I'm not going to be the guy to tell you to get out, I promise. But if you're an AA and you're a drug addict and you sit down with an alcoholic to 12-step them, maybe you don't know all about the drinking game, right? And is he going to want to hear what you have to say if you don't know all about the drinking game? Now, later on, if somebody's been around a while or they've been, maybe you can relate on a different level. Maybe you can relate on the spiritual malady. Maybe you can relate on the failure of self-will. Maybe you can relate on seeking God through the 12 steps or whatever. But in the very beginning, when I was brand new, I didn't want to hear what you had to say unless I knew that you knew. That's the importance of this singleness of purpose. If we've got a heroin addict walk into AA looking for help, I don't tell him get out of here. I know plenty of heroin addicts. I say, hey, listen, I need you to sit down with this person. And the cool thing about Austin and, and I don't know if we have it everywhere, but in Austin, there are um, a lot of 12-step fellowships that use the big book. There's Cocaine Anonymous, Heroin Anonymous, Marijuana Anonymous, Drug Addicts Anonymous, and then it, you know, it just goes on, the list goes on and on. And these are all programs that use the big book. So, so it's the same solution, you know, but we can find people. And, and I, hope, I hope that someday everywhere has that, you know, so that people don't have to try to hide out an AA and relate to people that have never done what they've done, you know. That's a great thing. And if you're one of those folks that are kind of questionable or whether or not you belong in AA, come talk to me. We can talk about, you know, maybe we can get some of these other things going if you don't have them in your area you know, to help out. Because AA, AA helped to start all the other 12-step fellowships. 
You know, it was somebody in AA helping somebody that was not alcoholic to get that stuff going. Um, okay, so we the process of identification. When he sees you know all about the drink, all about the drinking game, commence to describe yourself as an alcoholic. So, what does that mean to describe myself as an alcoholic? That means I do what Mary did last night. I explain alcoholism using my experience. Here's what makes me alcoholic. I have this this problem with the body. This problem with alcohol. But that's not the end of it. I also have this problem with my mind. When I'm not drinking, this happens. You know, okay? Then it goes on to say, tell them how baffled you were, how you finally learned you were sick. Give them an account of the struggles you made to stop. Show him the mental twist which leads to the first drink. We suggest you do this as we have done it in the chapter on alcoholism. Now, I've heard people say that, okay, that's when we start reading the chapter on alcoholism with them. I don't think that's what it says. How did they do it in the chapter on alcoholism? They used stories. So I use my stories. This book, the first chapter after the doctor's opinion, is Bill's story. It's Bill's personal 12-step call to you. You know, that's how I want to do this. I want to kind of tell enough of my story to illustrate what it means to be alcoholic and get him to tell me his story. But we're doing this together in a conversation. Now, check this out. Here's how you qualify the guy. If he is alcoholic, he will understand you at once. He's nodding his head. Yeah. I got, if he's not alcoholic, he's going, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and I've had that happen. You know, I had a, a, a friend of my mom's in Al-Anon wanted me to 12-step her son. And he was either not ready or he didn't get it because he was going, why would you do that? <laughs> it's like, this is really uncomfortable. <laughs> And then not only will he understand me at once, he will match some of your mental inconsistencies with some of his own. So now he's telling me his stuff. And he really, man, they usually just throw it all out there. And man, you got all the ammo now. Because then when they want to say, well, I don't want to do this, they say, remember what you told me? If you are satisfied that he's real alcoholic, then begin to dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. Really start to talk about the hopelessness. Okay, now I'm not going to read all this, but I just kind of wanted to get us going so you see what I'm talking about. It spends a few pages doing this, but in AA they tell us, share your experience, strength, and hope. Not in the 12-step call. In the 12-step call, my job is to give someone what we call a fatal dose of alcoholism. I'm trying to shatter all the hope that this guy has that he can do this job on his own. I want him to walk away going, oh no. <laughs> Mary tried to write it on the board last night, but her marker wouldn't work. But what I want him going is, I'm screwed. I'm screwed. I'm in big trouble. And he knows it's true. He's just been avoiding the truth. And I'm laying the truth out for him, just like somebody did with me and just like somebody did with you, where they're talking to you and you're going, damn, this is true. This is true because this is what my experience shows. We're shattering hope. The hope comes later. Okay, so then it goes on to talk more about when we start to talk about it. It says stress the spiritual feature freely. That's when we start to talk about what happened to us. How are you sober? If you drank the way I drank and you did all this stuff, how are you sober? Here's how. Tell them exactly what happened to you. Okay, so then it goes on and gives instructions. I'm not going to get into all of them. I want to move on to... Um, to, uh, what I like to do after I've 12-stepped a guy, here's what I've done with him. I've explained the problem to him based on my experience, right? 
Then I've told him what the solution is. It's spiritual in nature. This is what happened to me. This is what I did. I briefly outlined the program of action. If you want to do this, this is what I'll ask, be asking you to do. You're going to, we're going to have to write inventory. You're going to have to share this stuff with me. Deepest, darkest secrets. We're going to go clean up the past. We're going to daily regimen of prayer and meditation. You know, we're going to, you, then you, you know, we got to go out and help others. So when I say, are you willing to go to any length, he knows what lengths I'm talking about. Right? And all this stuff happens in this conversation. And basically, I've taken the guy through steps one and two in this first conversation, and he hadn't even made any kind of commitment yet. You know? Now, I don't always do it that way. Sometimes I sit down with him again and really do step one in depth and step two in depth. But it still, it goes fast. Okay? So, um, so then I let him, give him a chance to think it over. The book tells me, give him a chance. He might say, let's do it, but I want to get, maybe that's just an hour or two. Maybe it's a day, whatever. Meet me here tonight. Let's talk about it and see if you want to do this. Give him a chance to think it over and then tell him, I can help you go through the steps. I can help you through this process if that's what you want to do. And then it's up to him, right? I'm not forcing anybody to do this. But most people walk into AA, they have no idea what you have to offer if you know the, the truth about your own alcoholism. And a lot of times when you talk to someone, they might be like, no, nah, I don't want you to sponsor me. They're not going to ask you. If you offer to sponsor them, they're not going to take you up on it. But if you explain alcoholism the way this book talks about, and you talk about what the solution is, they might be going, wait a minute. I didn't know about all that. Maybe I should give this a shot. You know. So I don't even mention the word sponsorship until after all this process. Mary won't even say the word. <laughs> you know you're talking to a big book thumper when they say protege it's a clear sign i love it okay what about oh, this let's move on then that's how to 12 step somebody how to sponsor or how to take somebody through the steps just real quickly i'm gonna tell you what it looks like if i'm taking you through the steps we're gonna sit down and cover steps one and two we're going to talk about the problem you're going to share your experience i'm going to share mine i'm going to tell you what the solution is it's spiritual God of your own uh, of your understanding, do you believe or are you willing to believe? Lack of power, just a few main points that Mary covered. There we go. Steps one and two are done. We didn't read the book together. We didn't go line by line. Now, if you take your sponsees through the big book line by line, great. That is not going to hurt anybody. That's a great way to do it. I sponsor a lot of guys, and what I found is that I can cover it a little bit more quickly, and I'm going to let you read the book on your own time and then hit me up with questions about it. That's just how I do it. Okay, remember, this is just how I do it. We're going to meet up again. I'm going to take you line by line through 60 to 63. We're going to do a third step. We're going to really drill the, the failure of self-will as much as we can and do a third step prayer. And I'm going to send you home to write inventory. And I'm going to show you how to write inventory, maybe not all at once, but we're going to do it. But anyway, the thing is, immediately we're going to write inventory. How long is that going to take you? It depends on how much time you spend on it. Charlie says a, a fourth step takes two months and three hours. You can put it off for two months and then you finally write it in three hours. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, depending on how in-depth you want to go with this person, and maybe if it's kind of intuitive. If you've been taking a lot of people through the steps, maybe you know how thorough they need to be in their inventory. You know, I'm not going to be the one to tell you that. You know, because a lot of people do it different ways based on what this book is saying. Write the inventory, then we're going to sit down together and we're going to do a fifth step. I'm going to send you home to do six and seven. Then you're going to call me and give me a report on that, and then I'm going to tell you to do step eight and tell you just how to, how to make a list. And we're going to get together and we're going to go over that. And I'm going to send you out to make some of those amends. We're going to get some of the quick ones that we need to get going. Maybe the person that you live with. 
Maybe it's, you know what I mean? We're going to get these going. We're going to start these amends. And then very quickly, maybe the next day, maybe that day, I'm going to teach you how to do steps 10 and 11. And I know that Mary does it even quicker than that. She wants you on 10 and 11 very quickly, right? Like right after the fifth step. Yeah, doing that stuff that day when you get home. Yeah, we're going to get going on 10 and 11 very quickly. And then we're going to talk about, um, I'm going to give you a little bit of quick advice on how to sponsor somebody. And then you go get them. And then you ask me questions while you're doing it. So within a matter of days, depending on how long it takes you to write your inventory, you're out there looking for sponsees and opportunities to carry this message. You're making your amends and you're practicing 10 and 11. And it's quick. We don't have to figure it all out. And the first way I worked the steps was very thorough. It took over a year and I was pretty willing. I think it took me two years to get through the 12 steps. It was a very long drawn out process. You know, and I stuck with it, but a lot of people didn't. You know, and the idea was to be very thorough. There's no way you can do this in a month. You'll miss a lot of things. Well, you're going to miss a lot of things. I don't care how long you do it, but we're going to keep doing it. You know, if you miss 99% of your issues in your first inventory, that's fine because we're going to write more and more and more and more and more. We're going to keep it going. Okay, that's how I take somebody through the steps. It's, it's fast. It's as thorough as we can be and still do it quickly. How many sponsees is too many? I've heard people say there's no way you can sponsor more than five people. You don't have time for them. Okay, that's true for that person. And, and then I was told sometime, I think I had five years, and I had someone tell me, man, you should have at least ten sponsees, at least. Okay, well, that's true also for that person. You know. But here's what I want to tell you. How many is too many? Go find out. Maybe don't have an opinion on an experience you haven't had. I found that number. At that time in my life, I found, oh, I have too many right now. And I started kind of delegating to other guys I was sponsoring. And that's a cool thing. If you got too many, well, that means you got sponsors ready to be, have people handed off to them. And then I'd meet with a new guy after the meeting and be like, okay, man, I got the perfect guy for you. I'm going to match you up with so-and-so. And I do that all the time now because I get people from a great distance on the PPG online looking for sponsors, and I match them up with different people. I have a list I look at, then I say a prayer, and a name pops out at me. It's the coolest thing. Man, I get more inspiration when it comes to helping others than I do in any, any other area in my life. It's really cool. I tell you, that's another thing that's easy to miss out on. You know, God speaks to me sometimes. I'm not, I'm not one of those people that gets real clear direct communication from God all the time. There are people with a lot less time than me that have been doing this not near as long as me, and they get direct instruction from God on a regular basis. I get it sometimes, you know, but not all the time. A lot of the time, God speaks to me through you, right? Has everybody had that experience? Somebody in the meeting or sponsor or somebody said, you know, that's God speaking to me. Sometimes God speaks to me through me when I'm helping you. Have you had this experience where you're talking to someone that you're working with and then something comes out of your mouth and you're going, where did that come from? <laughs> and you're looking at them and you're like, I don't even know if you heard that, but that helped me immensely. Yeah. I just love it. I always get guys to work with that are going through the same thing I am. And I'll call Charlie and tell him, he's like, yep, just what you needed. Um, I sponsor a lot of guys. And, and here's why I can sponsor a lot of guys. Because um, 
my philosophy on it is it's not my job to motivate them. It's not my job to teach them everything. They can go to big book studies and learn the big book. They can do studies with their friends and, and learn. They can um, um, ten step with different people, including me. They can... Um, uh, uh, we go through the steps very quickly. It's a fast process. I'm not giving you an hour on the phone to talk about your problems. You know, We do ten step discussions quickly. I have some guys that call me every day, every other day, but those conversations may last two or three minutes. I got one guy, I just did one with him out here on break, and uh, he says his piece about what his wife is doing again. And, and uh, then I say my piece about it, and he says, thanks for the truth, man, I'm going to God. And we're off the phone, you know, we're done in three minutes, four minutes, or whatever. That's the way I do it. Is that the way you need to do it? I don't know. I'm not saying that. But because of that, I sponsor a lot of people. And that, some people don't, though. Some people sponsor a few and maybe do it more effectively than I do. I'm not going to be the one to tell you that, but find out. Just find out. Have that experience and see. How do you carry this message in a treatment center, in a jail, um, in some sort of institution, at a beginner's meeting? How do you do that? What if you have five minutes to talk? What if you have 45 minutes to talk? How do you do that? What do you do? You just tell your story? That's great. I think that's the lifeblood of AA is telling our stories. It is. Maybe when I tell my story, I can, I can use that opportunity to illustrate the hopelessness of alcoholism. That's probably even more effective. You know, maybe I can tell you not only, maybe not only illustrate the hopelessness of alcoholism based on my experience, but also tell you what happened to me and how I had that spiritual awakening. That's maybe even more effective. You know, so how do I do that? Um, uh, I love what Mary did um, at, on steps one and two, which I assume is based a lot on the foundation meeting, right? So primary purpose group, um, does we're a big book study, but whenever if we're say in the amends process and you're walking into your first meeting, that's not what you need to hear. So we scoop up new people and take them into another room, and someone does a presentation for them. This is what you need to know about alcoholism. This is what you need to know about this group. This is what you need to know about the big book. This is what you need to know about recovery, right? It's the need-to-know information for when you're walking in aid. Some of us had to go to a lot of meetings before we ever got all the need-to-know information, right? I know I had that experience. Maybe The truth is they were probably saying it, and I just wasn't hearing it. If I'm going to be fully transparent, you probably were. Okay, so, so um, if you'll email me, I'll send you a link to a recording of the foundation meeting that we have. Now, i got to warn you, though, it's, it's listening to 42 minutes of this accent because <laughs> I'm the one that got to present it. And I also, not only that, but I have a set of, an outline to go with it. And I can send you that, too. I have an electronic copy of that. So, again, there's my email address right up there, and I can, I'll send that with whatever emails I send out. Does Dallas have one? Yes. There's a recording of a foundation meeting on the Dallas primary purpose group website and you can just google dallas primary purpose group and there's all kinds of information on their uh, their website it's a good one okay another part of this book talks about where we can go i wrote that down as a note where, what was i talking about okay can i be around drinking It says, assuming, this is on the bottom of page 100. Assuming we are spiritually fit, we can do all sorts of things alcoholics are not supposed to do. 
It says we can go where liquor is served. We can keep it in our houses if we need to. Is that for everybody? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to be the judge of that. But it says an alcoholic who cannot meet these conditions still has an alcoholic mind. What is an alcoholic mind? I've still got that obsession. I still think I can handle this on my own power. That insanity behind the first drink. A lot of times we say an alcoholic mind is all that crazy stuff we think. But that's not what the book is referring to. Some of us don't think all that crazy stuff. Some of us think a lot. I, I think enough of it for three or four of you. Right? If, you, if there was a loudspeaker on my head, I'd be arrested in a matter of minutes. <laughs> but that's not what they're talking about. The alcoholic thinking they're talking about, the insanity that they're talking about, is about this inability to turn down that first drink every time, considering what, it's causes, what it causes us when we do it. That's that alcoholic mind. So it goes on. I'm not going to read all this, but here's the deal. Here's all I want to say about this. Can we go where there's drinking? Yes, if we meet two conditions. Number one, are we spiritually fit? Number two, do we have a good reason for being there? Right? Okay, so what's a good reason for being there? Well, maybe it's a family reunion, and maybe it's very important to your family that you show up for it. Can you be there? Well, yeah. Are you spiritually fit? Does that mean I feel good? I don't know. I think there's more to being spiritually fit. Maybe there are some other questions we can ask. Am I spiritually fit? Am I current on my amends or did I quit after I made the first three? Am I, have I been steady in prayer and meditation? Am I sponsoring anybody? Am I actually working this program? Have I been showing up at my home group? What have I done over the last week? How much time have I spent helping others, helping other alcoholics? Those are questions I can ask to see if I'm spiritually fit, and they're much more valuable questions than how do I feel, right? Or maybe the question is, am I all caught up in trying to make sure something goes my way, or am I pretty okay with everything? Maybe that's a good question. Maybe I should ask my sponsor, how do you feel about how spiritually fit I am right now? And if your sponsor says, I'm not really sure, you're not talking to your sponsor enough. <laughs> Maybe your sponsor should have a better idea on how you're doing. Yeah. So am I, so, so am I going just because I like to be at the bar? That's probably not a good reason, you know, regardless of how spiritually fit I am. But if I'm going to my cousin's wedding and there's going to be drinking there, let's make sure I'm spiritually fit. Let's make sure that some of the people who hold me accountable know where I'm at and I'm in touch with them. And if the drinking gets a little out of hand and I don't have an alcoholic mind, my mind will say, hmm, this is looking a little bit tempting. Maybe it's time to leave early, you know. Maybe you didn't drive. Walk. You know, call an Uber. If you don't have any money, call another member of AA and say, I'm afraid I'm going to drink. Can you call me an Uber? Nobody calls Uber. I don't even know why I'm saying that. There's an app. <laughs> call a taxi or, I don't know, send for an Uber. You, you see what I'm saying, though, right? If I'm, if, I, if I'm spiritually fit and I don't have that alcoholic mind, I know when I'm in trouble here. And then let's take that as a serious piece of business. Okay. Now, next thing I want to talk about, I want to move on from that. And I, um, it's the second part of the 12 steps is we practice these principles in all our affairs. 
Practice these principles. Okay, I have a pet peeve. I have lots of pet peeves, but I'm only going to share one of them with you. There are, there are bookmarks that people will have in their big books, and if you have one, I apologize in advance. <laughs> this is my issue, not yours. There are bookmarks, I think, put out by Hazelden, and I don't know who all else, and it'll have principles of the steps, and it'll say step one, I don't know, honesty or something. Step two, hope. Step three, surrender or something. I don't know. They give these one-word principles for each step. I don't like them. I don't think those are our principles. I think our principles are much more based on the actions that we take. Let me tell you what, I'm, what I mean by that. Acceptance is the answer to all my problems. Well, sure it is. Acceptance is. If I can accept everything in the world as it is, life is awesome. You know, yeah, diagnosed with cancer? Cool. Can't wait to see what this is like. What's God going to do with this? That's awesome. If you can do that, great. Here's the problem with acceptance. If I'm not actively involved in these 12 steps, doing all the stuff that we're supposed to do, I have no acceptance. It's not available for me. So telling me to practice acceptance, if I'm not working a program, is like telling me, Chad, here's what you need to do. Grow a pair of wings and fly away. Okay, right. I can't do that. Honesty, courage, acceptance, compassion, integrity, those are the results of practicing the principles, not the principles. And what the point I'm trying to get across, I'm probably oversimplifying it, but the point I'm trying to get across is if I'm not writing inventory and making amends and praying and meditating and working with others, acceptance and courage and honesty, those are out of reach for me. So when it says we practice these principles in all our affairs, what's that? let's see if I have time to do this. What's that look like? Here's what it looks like. I want to read you a piece of inventory. So I was a teacher, and I, was, I had bus duty. I was watching the buses pick up the kids. And um, uh, I was, at the time, I was kind of a hard-ass teacher. You know, I like to be that guy, I like the tough guy. You had that teacher in school, that coach or whatever, the hard-ass. Yeah. And, and I see the window down on the bus, and a half-eaten apple flies out of the bus and lands on the ground in the direction of the dumpsters, but it doesn't make it. I'll handle this. So I march right onto the bus, and I see some of my freshman boys back there in the back. And I say, who threw it? Nobody's going to answer that question. They're 15. They're not going to answer that question. They're looking down, looking away. One's looking at his phone. The bus driver's like, am I ever going to get to leave? My, who threw it? Put your phone down. And then this one kid, named, his name's Lloyd, and um, he, he looks over at the other kid and says, you don't have to put your phone down. He can't do anything. <laughs> well, guess what? He's right. It's not the old days. In the old days, the teacher could have drug him off the bus, right? But not these days. Uh-uh. So I ended up getting off the bus, and I have no idea who threw the apple. And I look like a fool, and the bus leaves. And I am upset, and I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to get them. <laughs> how am I going to get revenge on these 15-year-old boys? So I do the work, man. I'm upset. I call Charlie. I leave a message. I say a prayer. I call Charlie. leave a message. I grab pen and paper, and I write out a quick piece of inventory. And here it is. Here we go. This will be fun. 
And, and keep in mind, this is a little bit more in-depth than the, than the uh, process that, that uh, Mary was talking about, but this is one single resentment, you know. This is not my big four-step that I did in the beginning. Okay, I'm upset with Lloyd. He doesn't do what I say, and I, I have problems with him in my class. This is not just about the bus incident. This is on. He doesn't do what I say. He has an attitude of superiority, entitlement, and laziness. He makes a decent grade without working hard. That goes against what I tell him. I tell him you have to work hard to make a good grade, right? <laughs> He doesn't do what I asked him to do, and he still makes a good crew. I want to, like, like cheat on his paper and change his answers. He argues with me. He's disrespectful to me, and he laughed at me when I was mad. Okay, third column. How does this affect my self-esteem? I need to see myself as a good teacher and to be the authority figure. And he took that away from me in that moment, right? It affects my pride because others should listen to me when I mean business and no one disrespects me. Because after all, I'm the authority figure. No one disrespects me, right? It affects my ambition because there's things things I want here. I want to put him in his place. I want to punish him. I want him to fail. I want revenge. I want others to know I I won the battle. And it's not happening. I can't figure it out. I can't figure out how to do it. And here's the really cool part about this. At the time... I was 40, and he was 15. (laughs) It affects my security. I need appreciation and respect to be okay. I need to be right, and I need to win. That's what I need to maintain my security. It affects my personal relations. These These are the old ideas that I have about how this relationship should work. Students should work hard. They should recognize who's in charge, listen, and show respect. They should know when to shut up and pay attention. That has a huge effect on my relationships with students. First off, I was not that kid. I didn't work hard. I certainly didn't recognize who's in charge. That would have been me. I didn't listen. I didn't show respect. I never shut up and paid attention. Okay. There's a piece in between the third column and the fourth column. It says, we realized that the person who harmed us was perhaps spiritually sick. Though we didn't like their symptoms and the way these disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. So I want to take just a minute. This is not the purpose of the inventory, but I want to take just a minute before I move into the fourth column, and I want to look at Lloyd from a different angle, an entirely different angle. This is on the bottom of 60... Six and top of 67, I believe, if you're wanting to know where this is in the book. So I realized that Lloyd is spiritually sick, and here's how. He's an insecure teenager with an out-of-control ego (laughs) trying to become a man the best way he can figure it out. He reminds me of me. He, like me, is sick too. So all of a sudden, in that brief moment, now I look at him and go, I get it, man. You got to show out in front of your buddies, you know? You got to look like a man. I I know exactly how you feel. You know, except you're 15 and I'm 40. <laughs> yeah. Why do I need to relate to him in that way? Because I'm about to disregard what he did entirely. And it's a lot easier if I can look at him and go, "Oh, I get it. I get it, man. I have that same problem." I say the prayer that Mary laid out in that process. And then I write a fourth column. And here's what I came up with in this fourth column. I'm not concerned about what's best for Lloyd. My concerns are all about me and what I need. I'm being childish. That's pretty self-centered. 
I set the ball rolling by demanding to know who threw the apple and then got upset when they didn't tell. I came in trying to be a badass and it backfired. I demand respect and don't get it. That's not how you get respect. You don't demand it. You earn it, right? I set myself up for resentment and I lost the opportunity to be helpful. I have self-seeking thoughts to get back at him. This is so lame. By calling home to get him in trouble. By writing him up. By holding him and his classmates to a new tougher standard and being hard on them and blaming it on him. Right? Well, this is the way it is now because this is what you did. Right? All those, your teachers did those things, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. These self-seeking thoughts, that's an understatement. My mind was running 100 miles an hour to figure out how to get this situation under control. And that's what my mind does when I'm in resentment. It's going and going and going. I'm delusional to think that a 15-year-old boy would act any different. And I'm afraid. I'm afraid of losing. I'm afraid of being wrong, being disrespected, looking incompetent. I'm afraid of embarrassment. I'm afraid of losing control. I'm playing God. Okay, so I wrote the inventory. I read it to Charlie. We came up with some stuff after it was over. Here's what's objectionable. This need to win at all costs as a teacher trying to help kids. And guys, I am the teacher that helps kids. And I spent most of my time focused on how I can be of service to those kids. But I get in resentment or fear, and that's gone. And now it's all about me. Just you flip a switch, just like that. And that's why I need to get free of that. Plus, I might drink. Like, so it's pretty important to get free of this. And I can tell you, I haven't done it this way every time. Sometimes I go, I go handle it. You know, I go handle the problem. And I live in this place, and I'm not of service, and I build up my ego even more. And if I stay that way and continue to do that, an alcoholic like me will drink. What else is objectionable? The need to be tough to prove something. With 15-year-olds. The need to always have control. The fear and the pride. And the deep-down belief that I'm not enough because that's what drives it. If I was truly confident in who I am as a child of God, I wouldn't have to have all this stuff. You know? You know what I wish I would have done? I wish I would have gone on the bus and said, who threw the apple? And if nobody answered me, just said, that's okay, I'll get it. And walked out and picked up the apple and thrown it away. That would have sent exactly the message I wanted to send. You know? But no, I'm tough. <laughs> Do I have the power to change this to fix me? No. Am I willing to let God handle me and, and, and uh, change me in whatever way He sees fit? Yes. Yes, I am. I'm making that commitment. I do a seven-step prayer, and then how can I align myself with the process? Well, I can pause and ask before acting. I knew that made me mad when that bus flew out that window. What if I actually practice what Mary just told me to? And pause. I'm agitated, man. I'm doubtful on how to handle this. What if I went to God in that moment? Then I wouldn't have had to write this stupid inventory, right? <laughs> Stop trying to be tough. Let it go. There is nothing to prove. Be honest about feelings with students. I don't know where that came from, and that ain't me, but you'll see in a minute. 
Because this is what I'm asking God, and this is the inspiration that I'm getting. This is I'm, I'm asking God, and I'm writing down what comes to mind. And by the way, I want to do another little plug here. That's based on two-way prayer, which the founders of AA were doing. It was an, a practice the Oxford group was doing. So write this down if you're interested. Twowayprayer.org. Spell out the, the, the number two. T-W-O prayer two. T-W-O-W-A-Y prayer.org. There you go. If you got some, if you if you ask somebody, somebody understood what I was saying. It's a great practice to add into your eleven step. Okay, check this out. This also came up. This is what what God told me in this. All I see in Him is a reflection of something in me. It ain't Him. He is perfect in the eyes of God, as am I. Hmm. And that's true. I saw a reflection of of what I don't like about me in Him. And I immediately didn't like him. That ain't his fault. And then there were amends called for. And guess what? I had to approach those guys on the bus and say, hey, I'm sorry about the way that I approached you guys. You know. Okay. And then this new way. So someone told me this, and this comes straight from Counseling 101, when you, I feel, and I'm sure some of you guys know that because you've been to therapy, or somebody in AA who's been to therapy told you to do it. But I actually tried this in this moment. I'm not saying this is always what you need to do, but I tried this in this moment. I was coming back into my class, and I had a class that was very rowdy after lunch because there was always drama at lunch. And I taught at a school where everybody at this school had been kicked out of their school. That's why they were at our school, right? A disciplinary alternative school. And after lunch, I walk into my classroom, and it's rowdy, and they're all acting up. And, man, I, I get on. That's what I do. I handle that stuff. Like, I walk, sit down, Right? I get that every teacher has to have a mean look. You know, you like watch Clint Eastwood movies to practice. (laughs) But one day there's this kid named Preston. I go in and uh, he seems to kind of be the leader in that class. And uh, and I call his name. I ask him to come out in the hall and he's bowed up and ready. Because when a teacher calls you out in the hall, get ready, you're about to get in trouble. And I say to him, oh, no, 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 let me back up. I went in and I asked him to sit down and get, get busy on what they were supposed to do. And they ignored me. So then I called him out in the hall, and he was out there. I said, hey, Preston, um, when you ignore me, I feel disrespected. And he just melted, just like that. Now, again, I'm not telling you this always works, but God inspired me to do this because this time I paused, and I asked, and I got the inspiration, and this is what I did. And he said, Mr. Payne, I'm sorry. And then, from then on, when I would walk in that class after lunch, and he saw me walk in, I didn't have to tell him to sit down. He did it for me. You know, and that's how this stuff works. Does it always work this cool where you can talk about it from the podium? Maybe not. But this time it did, and a lot of times it does, you know. So that's what it looks like to practice these principles in all my affairs. What if that happened and Charlie said, man, just have acceptance? Really? Just read your bookmark. Look at step seven on your bookmark. Try humility. No, that's what it means to practice these principles in all my affairs. That's one example of it. So, where are we at here? Oh, okay, we'll take a break. We'll come back. I ran us a little over. We'll come back at 3.05. Remember, if you have any questions, be sure they're in the basket because that's what we're going to do. We're going to answer the questions and then get out of here.